did America get so dumb? I mean, I'm not trying to be, you know, whatever. Let's just call it. This uh, special, this uh, Anwar the Mady has a video. It says the dumbing down of society by any means to get you into hell in this world or the hereafter. That's basically the bottom line. And no matter what we see, distractions, whatever, that's the bottom line is they want you dumb. So we give up our souls and they take over. That's what it is. The only way out is with my creator who gave me life, who will also give me uh, this I'm reading what the author wrote, my death, and it is God who shall judge me on the day of judgment. So wrote Anwar the Mehdi. Check him out on YouTube. The Dumbed Down Society, how it happened. Here we go. We're developing a society because of all of these different toxins known to affect brain function. We're seeing a society that not only has a lot more people of lower IQ, but a lot fewer people of higher IQ. In other words, a dumbing down, a chemical dumbing down of society. So everyone's sort of mediocre. That leaves them dependent on government because they can't excel. We have these people of lower IQ who are totally dependent. Then we have this mass of people who are going to believe anything they're told because they can't really think clearly. And very few people of very high IQ who have good cognitive function who can figure this all out. And that's what they want. So, you know, you can kind of piece it together as to why they are so insistent in spending so many hundreds of millions of dollars of propaganda money to dumb down society. You might want to ask yourself why the entire culture is utterly saturated with mass media entertainment from all sides while the educational system in America continues its stupefying downward slide since the U.S. government decided to take over and subsidize the public school system. What your government pays for, it gets. When we understand that, then we look at government-financed institutions of education and turned out by these government-financed schools Logic will tell you that if what is being turned out in those schools was not in accord with what the state and the federal government wanted, then it would change it. The bottom line is that the government is getting what they have ordered. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. That is why our country and our world has become so proliferated with entertainments, mass media, television shows, amusement parks, drugs, alcohol, and every kind of entertainment to keep the human mind entertained so that you don't get in the way of important people by doing too much thinking. You had better wake up and understand that there are people who are guiding your life and you don't even know it. We're in a lot of trouble because you people and 62 million other Americans are listening to me right now because less than 3% of you people read books. 
Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel, the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers. This tube is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. And when the largest company in the world controls the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world, who knows what shit will be paid off for truth on this network. So you listen to me. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're the border-killing business. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. My name's Teresa. I'm 44 years old. I live in Bedford, Virginia. It's a pretty day today. And I'm addicted to eating rocks. Eating the rocks? I don't think I would be able to function every day if I didn't eat some quantity of rocks. Rocks, R-O-C-K. Teresa has been addicted to eating rocks for more than 20 years. She was initially attracted to the earthy smell. I was just out walking one day. I had no intention of biting into it or chewing it, but I did, and once I did that, I was hooked on them. Now, Teresa can't go more than a few hours without eating rocks. This is the grittiness of it and the earthy taste. I actually like You don't know what animal has been on that rock. This cannot be real. How does she still have teeth? Feels on my teeth when I'm crunching them up. Customer service, Willie, can I help you? Hello? Yeah. Yes, I got a disconnection notice, but I mailed my pay, notice. Pay your bill, pay your bill, that's what you got to do. I did. Yeah, well, you, you got to pay your bill, that's why we're going to shut you off. I know that. We're going to shut you down. What, what, can, what can you understand about that? Pay your bill. Excuse me? I said pay your bill, come on. Save the drama for your mama. Who are you? This is Willie Robinson of customer service. Y'all need to get it through your thick heads and pay your bill. I'd pay like your, your bill. I'd like to talk to your manager. This is Bill Moore's uh, Moyers and Company, and it is called uh, What the 1% Don't Want You to Know. Of hyperlinks in cyberspace nearly six centuries after Gutenberg devised his printing press, it's still possible for a single book to shake the foundations, rattle cliches, upend dogma, unnerve ideologues, and arm everyday people with the knowledge they need to fight back against the predatory powers that have robbed them of their birthright as citizens. This is such a book, capital in the 21st century, 
by the French economist Thomas Piketty. The book of the season, to many, to others, the book of the decade. Reviewers have called it a bulldozer of a book, magisterial, seminal, definitive, a watershed. At 700 pages, it's already a bestseller, and there isn't a single scene of seduction, not one celebrity interview, not one picture, just graph after graph, fact on fact, drawn from two centuries of data and embedded in prose that can suddenly explode like a supernova in the brain. Here's one of its extraordinary insights. We are heading into a future dominated by inherited wealth as capital concentrates in fewer and fewer hands, giving the very rich ever greater power over politics, government, and society. Patrimonial capitalism is the name for it, and it has potentially terrifying consequences for democracy. For those who work for a living, the level of inequality in the U.S., writes Piketty, is probably higher than in any other society at any time in the past, anywhere in the world. Over three decades, between 1977 and 2007, 60% of our national income went to the richest 1% of Americans. No wonder this is the one book, the 1%, doesn't want the other 99% to read. Paul Krugman has been writing extensively and generously about Piketty's book. The Nobel Prize-winning economist and New York Times columnist calls it a tour de force, a magnificent sweeping meditation on inequality that will change both the way we think about society and the way we do economics. As scholar, author of many books, and widely read columnist and blogger, Paul Krugman has himself changed a lot of thinking on politics and economics. Welcome back. Hi. Inequality has been on the table for a long time. You've written extensively. Others have, too. I mean, it's, it's a, a familiar issue. But what explains that this book has now become a phenomenon? Actually, a lot of what we know about inequality actually comes from him because he's been an invisible presence behind a lot. So when you talk about the 1%, you're actually, to a large extent, reflecting his prior work. But what he's really done now is he said, even those of you who talk about the 1%, you don't really get what's going on. You're living in the past. You're living in the 80s. You think that Gordon Gekko is the future. And Gordon Gekko is a bad guy. He's a predator. But he's a self-made predator. And right now, what we're really talking about is we're talking about Gordon Gekko's son or daughter. We're talking about inherited wealth playing an ever-growing role. So he's telling us that we are on the road not just to a highly unequal society, but to a, a society of uh, an oligarchy, a society of inherited wealth, patrimonial capitalism. And he does it with enormous amount of documentation, and it's it's a revelation. I mean, even for someone like me, it's a revelation. I was going to ask, what did what does Paul Krugman have to learn from this this book? Even the title, the first word in the title, capital. We stopped talking about capital. Even people like me stopped talking about capital because we thought it was all about human capital. We thought it was all about earnings. We thought that the wealthy were people who, one way or another, found a way to, to make a lot of money. Right. Um, and we knew that that wasn't always true. We knew that in the, in the Gilded Age or in the Belle Epoque in Europe, which he prefers to talk about, the, that, that uh, high incomes were mostly the result of having lots and lots of assets. But we sort of said, well, that's not the way things work anymore. And he says, oh, yeah? It turns out that you're wrong, that it's true that right now a lot of high incomes in America are people who didn't start out all that rich, but we're rapidly moving towards a state where inherited wealth dominates. I didn't know that. I really was... I should have known it. I should have thought about it, but I didn't. And so then here, here comes this book with, I mean, it's, 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 it's 
beautiful. It has to be analytically beautiful, if that makes any sense at all. Yes, to the I, as you know, I'm no economist, but I found this book, as I said in the opening, just yeah, very readable, and suddenly there'd be this moment of epiphany. Yeah, it's a real Eureka book. You suddenly say, oh, this is not, the world is not the way I saw it. The world, in fact, has moved on a long way in the last 25 years and not in a direction you're going to like because we are seeing not only great disparities in income and wealth, but we're seeing them get entrenched. We're seeing them become uh, inequalities that will be transferred across the generations. Uh, we are becoming very much the kind of society we imagine we're nothing like. Here's Piketty's main point. Capital tends to produce real returns of 4 to 5 percent, and economic growth is much slower. What's the practical result of that? What that means is that if you have a large fortune, suppose that our family has a large fortune, they can, the inheritors of that large fortune, can live very, very well. They can live extraordinary standard of living and still put a large fraction of, that, of the income from that fortune aside, and the fortune will grow faster than the economy. So the big dynastic fortunes tend to take an ever-growing share of total national wealth. So once you, when you have a situation where the returns on capital are pretty high and the growth rate of the economy is not that high, you have a situation in which not only can people live well off inherited wealth, but they can actually pass on to the next generation even more, an even higher share. And so it's all, in his terms, R, the rate of return on capital, and G, the rate of growth of the economy. And, and when you have a high R, low G economy, which is what we now have, then you're talking not you're talking about a situation in which dynasties come increasingly to dominate the, the top of the economic spectrum, and a tiny fraction of the population ends up very dominant. What's the realistic impact of this on working people? There's a direct impact, which is that part of income is always going to go to labor, although that seems to be a diminishing fraction, but the part that comes from capital is going to be in the hands of a very few people. The other thing, which I think is critically important, and he talks about more towards the end of the book, is political economy that when you have, that's what Teddy Roosevelt could have told you and did, that when you have a few people who are so wealthy that they can effectively buy the political system, the political system is going to tend to serve their interests. And, and that is going to reinforce this shift of income and wealth towards the top. Do you agree with him that we're drifting toward oligarchy? Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't think that's even, I, I don't see that there's any question of it. If you look at the, um, certainly if you look at, what we, what we know already, and we're, we're learning more, we know already about the concentration of income, of wealth, um, you can see that it is growing. You can see that, and you can actually see, I spent a little while just sort of going through the Forbes 400 list, and what you find is already uh, there's an awful lot of inherited wealth in there. It's no longer a, a list of self-made men, and of the self-made men, a lot of them are pretty elderly, and uh, those fortunes are going to be passed on to uh, next generation. So no, we, the drift to, towards oligarchy is very visible, both casual observation and in the numbers. I was taken with something you wrote the other day. You said that, in your opinion, the real problem is not capital accumulation per se, as much as it is, quote, remarkably high compensation and income. Now, how does that differ from what you were just saying about wealth that passes to the next generation? So right now, high incomes are still primarily uh, coming from people who've made a lot of money, typically as, as corporate executives. Uh, that has been the story. So the big expansion of inequality in the United States since the 1970s has so far been driven by high salaries, high bonuses, and all, so on. That's where we are now. But our image of the top 
is really a quarter century old. It is about the way things were when these great fortunes were just getting started, when we were just seeing the explosion of inequality. Um, but we're well along the way towards one in which it is, in fact, an older thing, where people accumulate capital, pass it on to their heirs, and you get these dynastic wealth. So right now, and this is where Piketty has interesting things to say, but not this compelling vision about why America is so unequal right now. But looking forward, is he's telling us that the story is already changing, and it's, it's going to change more. So we are going to probably, unless something gets better, we're going to look back nostalgically on the early 21st century when you could still at least have the pretense that the wealthy actually earned their wealth. And, you know, by, by the year 2030, it'll all be inherited. And at the same time, we can't even manage to pay workers a minimum wage of $10.10. Yeah, and what's amazing, I, I thought actually one of the most depressing things, although enlightening in his book, is he talks about uh, France in the, uh, the Belle Epoque the years before World War I, which was ideologically as much a society committed to equality in principle as we are today, but in practice was totally dominated by very wealthy families where it was impossible to even raise the possibility of seriously taxing great wealth. It was very hard to do anything to improve the conditions of ordinary workers. And it shows you how that can happen, how you can have a society where the even though the ideology is democratic, even though we claim that all men are equal, in practice, not a chance. Isn't that what's happening now in this Exactly, country? exactly. That's the point. And what's funny is at that time, Americans used to say, oh, we should never allow ourselves to become like old Europe, and in fact, we have. A story you warranted, Chamber. Hi, with him am I speaking? Colleen? Hello, Colleen. This is Niall Standish calling. Hi. I'm looking to relocate there. I'm a very, very wealthy Earl from Yankerville, and I'm looking to move possibly to Astoria or the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. What can you tell me about Astoria? Why should I move there? Begin. Low crime rate. Love it. Um, do you like rain? I love it. <laughs> You're going to love it here then. Wonderful. Um... There's a pretty large retirement community mm, here. I like, it. I like the old. Uh, 10,000 is the population. Perfect. Now, let me tell you what I have in the works. Okay. I'm a bit of a philanthropist. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very wealthy. And what I like to do is help people. Mm -hmm. I've set up some rehab centers throughout America. And I'm looking to build another one, possibly in Astoria. What, what kind of uh, rehab drug, alcohol? Well, it's called Lollipop House. Uh-huh. What it is, it's a rehab center for dangerous, violent sex offenders. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we draw violent, dangerous sex offenders from all the states surrounding. Mm -hmm. We'll bring them all there in one rain-soaked location. Now, we've had some therapies that have been working wonderfully for us. We have an electroshock therapy, some hypnotism we've tried. We were even experimenting with chemical castration. Mm -hmm. But we want to get to know the community <laughs> as well. Um, we'd like the predators to be able to work hand in hand with the local girls and boys club so that the what? two can get to know one another. They can Do you think that'll happen? Well, yes, they can get to know each other. There can be an educational uh, summit for the two of them. Hmm. And just so you know, my goal is that our members will eventually outnumber the current local population. In other words, there will be more dangerous, violent sex offenders than regular people in Astoria or Oh, goodness. Miss Heather, I'm 43, mom of two beautiful children, and I'm addicted to drinking paint. 
as it's going down your throat, it feels very nice and warm, almost like a thicker version of warm milk, but obviously it's got that very strong chemical taste to it, which is perfect to me. <laughs> I love it first sight. His body and his interior and everything just together just seemed to fit. I just felt an instant connection. Nathaniel's obsession first developed as a teenager when he would build model cars. But he didn't find true love until he met Chase. I find this part of him the most sexy just because of the subtle lines and curves. I'll give him a kiss here and just kind of caress him down the side. I don't know why I feel the way I do, but I just okay, so I hope you guys know his car is not a female like Christine. His car is a guy, and so that's why he's saying he's gay. Goodness, we missed the beginning. Hold on. Thanks, and I'm crazy obsessed about my rats. I love rats more than I love people. I do. I do. Hey, Janice, are you my crazy girl? I can't live without them. Chantal eats, lives, and breathes rats. This is huffing a rat. <laughs> it smells good. It smells like nachos. Sometimes I suffer from GGMR. <laughs> I gotta get more rats. Thank you very much. It's happened. <laughs> Chantal has 19 pet rats that she keeps in her two-bedroom apartment, and she treats all of them like her children. Each of the rats have different personalities. Burger likes to eat, and he doesn't like to exercise. Janice loves to kiss. Lily is my jumper. Oh, <laughs> sweetie. When you find your purpose in life, you know it. And it, that was what happened to me to when I saw th that first rat. I was 16 years old, and I've had them pretty much ever since. And I'll never be without them. I grew up with my siblings, and they were rats. So we get to know each other. Hey, you. But not everyone is as accepting of her obsession. Chantal recently moved out of the home that she shared with Chester, her husband of 11 years. She'll, uh go out and buy two or three rats for whatever reason and then i find out about it later initially that was quite confrontational my husband didn't really want to take care of my rats anymore it was very demoralizing and it was very difficult i didn't want any rats and <laughs> she can be quite uh, demanding and getting what she wants i soon realized that i needed to get my own apartment and i needed to get my rats out here hopefully this is a short-term arrangement that we've got here now and then we can get back together you know what your your dreams of hoping that our marriage is going to uh work out are going to be completely uh shattered look at her kids my husband will never have the type of bond that I have with my rats. My rats don't judge me. They so love me for who I am. Outside? When I cry, they why lick my tears. And when they're hungry, I feed them. Wait, why, why, why do you have to do this indoors, though? When I cry, they lick my tears. And when they're hungry, I feed them. I just don't know what to do. We always have such a good time together. He likes a lot of the same music I do. We have a favorite song. It's uh, Can't Fight This Feeling by Ariel Speedwagon. I do get in gifts how you buy something for your fiance or your wife. And then usually for his birthday, I try to do something special for him too. The favorite date would be going to the lookout area. Just lean against him a little and just be with him mainly. 
love you. Disconnected with reality and what matters. This is from a kid. All that matters to these people on Facebook and these people that waste their time um, is if they have a good day oh, or they have a bad day. Um, oh, this was fun. Huh? I went shopping. I, uh, I watched the game. That's all these people do. And we're living in a really dumbed down society where people are, they, they've got everything around them. They're consumed with social networking sites. They're Twittering. They're they've got their ears clogged with iPod buds. They don't understand anything unless they go onto, you know, MSNBC or Fox News. And the only news they get is, you know, uh, Tiger Woods. And that's all they'll hear about. Tiger Woods. And what Obama's doing for Christmas. That's all they'll hear about. People's priorities, they're, they're not there. There's people that are, there's a lot of people out there that um, are waking up to what's going on around them. I mean, they know the economy's bad. Most people know that, okay? If you don't know that, you're a moron. You shouldn't even deserve to have freedom if you don't even know anything about society. If you don't know that the economy's bad. Oh, and just to let you know, we're still in a recession, even though Newsweek says no. But, um, yeah, you go up to anybody and ask them about inflation, they won't, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. They're like, what? Inflation? What's that? You go about, and you talk to them about the failing U.S. dollar, they don't know how to respond to the conversation. See... But the, what it is with today's society, and you go up to anybody on the street to ask them a question about, you know, or have a conversation with someone, you know, have a conversation with friends, and if the conversation doesn't include keywords like basketball, Lady Gaga, iPod, Facebook, shopping, uh, ooh, look what I got at Aeropostale. Did you see Avatar? Did you see uh, Sherlock Holmes? Oh, you know, if those... If, those certain keywords aren't thrown into a conversation, then they can't talk with you. They don't know how to respond to what you're saying because they're kind of out of it. They're not programmed that way. They're so zombified this is by a television and social network. They don't know how to respond to something like that. You know, oh, inflation. Uh, when are you going to get to talking about fantasy football here? You know, whoa. Uh, global governance. I don't know what that is. That's that sounds weird. But hey, do you want to talk about Taylor Swift? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. We live in a society that's really stupid right now, and they don't really understand anything. Uh, so, anyway, I, I just can't stand it anymore. Um, just watching all these people. And listening to their conversations, I can't talk with more than half the people that I listen to. Because the people I listen to, when I'm around them, and they're talking with each other, when they're talking with each other, they're usually talking about sports, or video games, shopping, music. I don't care. I don't care. I mean, I'll care a little bit, like this much, but other than that, that stuff doesn't to let you know. Yes, I understand there has to be entertainment at times. I'm not saying there should be no entertainment. This should be serious. I'm not saying that. But people's lives are consumed with video games 
in computers, in sports, in iPods, and theaters. That's all it's consumed with. It's that 24-7. There's no real news going through their mind. Their real issues are never presented to them because they've never heard about it. Corporate media doesn't tell them. They, corporate media wants you to believe that real news is uh, Obama on vacation. Obama's getting a dog. That's the news about Obama that you should actually care about. Not the fact that he's selling America out. Not the fact that he's a freaking puppet. Not the fact that he's trying to sell this country out to Ooh. global elitists. Not the fact that so much money is being printed right now to save the, you know, to so-called, you know, save the economy. Hey, that's called inflation, and people have even raised the issue of hyperinflation. Hyper, hyperinflation, you know what that is? Hyperinflation? You look it up. If you've ever studied history, you know that after World War I and with Germany, you know, their economy sucked, and so they just kept printing money. They said, hey, let's just print more and more money, and that was called the mark, you know, it was, that's what it is, the mark. And they would print billions and billions of those. It was basically just like little leaflets of paper, and I don't know, I heard somewhere where, where it, you know, it was like, it took a couple of billion of them to equal one U.S. dollar. People would use the German mark as, uh, as fuel for fire to keep themselves warm. It's unbelievable. Hey, I'm just saying, at the rate we're at, I have no doubt in my mind that's what could probably happen to the U.S. dollar. You don't think history can't repeat itself? You yeah, think what? Just, an event happens one time and it's done? Really? Have genocides happened only once? Has there only been like one genocide in the entire world history? Has there only been one complete failing economy in in world history? Has there only been one failed nation in U.S. history, only one failed nation in, US, in a, a world history? No. You're... Uh, whatever. But anyway, I'm talking to an audience here that has kind of waken up. They've kind of... Uh, I mean, my audience, you guys, you know what I'm talking about here. And you can relate to what I'm saying. Because why else would you be subscribed to me? Why else would you be friends with my channel and stuff? Um, but, you know, get the message out. You know, stop. Instead of talking about sports, video games and stuff, once in a while, if you're, like, anywhere with your friends or anything, bring up, um, bring up inflation. Bring up the economy. Bring up global governance. Bring up the fraud called global warming. Get people talking. And even if you're around people you know who you know, would probably oppose what you have to say, speak up. Speak your mind. Do not let these stories go unnoticed because, well, history can repeat, can repeat itself. So. Wow. He was a teenager when he recorded that. So hold on. He gonna tell you the same thing. That's oh. damn well fine. Damn well, fine. I told him, get it through your thick head. I have never had one of these. You better shut your mouth the way you're talking. Pay to your me. bill or we shut you off. That's how it works. I want to talk to your manager you right now. You to be a paying customer. Right now, give me your manager. Yeah, he going to tell you the same thing. I don't I'm care. Give me him right now. Yeah, I transfer you, but he going to tell you the same thing I'm telling you. This man is telling me off. I don't know who the hell he thinks he is. I'm going to get him fired. Who the hell are you talking? Put them on the phone. Let me have a word with them. 
But we have had the Rockefellers. We've had the Carnegies. Uh, we've had the Pews. We've had big dynasties that transferred their wealth from one generation to another. Yes. Before World War One, we had our dynastic families, but they were not nearly as dominant as they were in Europe. Largely, not because we didn't have high returns on capital, but because we were growing so fast. We were mm -hmm. uh, an, an immigrant nation, a, fa a fast-growing nation, so they hadn't been able to establish a lock. And then after that, we had a long period of high taxation of large estates, uh, high taxation of capital income. Um, but now we're on our way back. Now we're on our way back towards something that looks much more like that kind of hierarchical society. Piketty makes the point that the very size of inherited fortunes today uh, is so great that it practically makes them invisible. Quote, wealth is so concentrated that a large segment of society is virtually unaware of its existence. Sure. If you have conversations with people who are not in this business, who are not economists, they have no idea what, it, what real wealth means in America. They think that having a million dollars makes you wealthy. They think that or having a salary of several hundred thousand dollars makes you wealthy. And while it's certainly true that's a vastly privileged condition compared with most people, the sheer size of those big fortunes is so far outside our normal experience that it does become invisible. You're, you're never, you're never going to meet these people. You're never going to have any sense of what it is that they control. And most people, I think, have no idea just how, I'm trying to, how, how, how far the, the commanding heights are from you and me. You remind us often, and you did so just the other day, that the United States has a much more unequal distribution of income than other advanced countries, and that much of this difference comes from government action, such as? If you look at, well, look at European countries, just about all of them, they don't actually necessarily have higher taxes on very high incomes. That's, uh, that's not so much the, the factor. And they, they have higher taxes overall, which are used to pay for a lot of programs of aid. So you have universal health care, and we have sort of are stumbling our way towards something like that now. Uh, but they have a lot of income support for people with low incomes. They have lots of support for, for young parents. They have lots of, basically, a, a lot of redistribution, which is a dirty word in US politics, but in fact is essential to having a decent society. So that to be, uh, the average American is richer than the average person in France although that's mostly because we work longer hours, but, but the, to be in the bottom of the, uh, the bottom fifth in France is a far, far better thing than to be in the bottom fifth in the United States because, because of these government policies. It's not that wages are especially high at, at the bottom in France, a little bit higher than in the United States because they have a high minimum wage, but mostly you have government programs which make an enormous difference. The, the level of inequality of market income, what people actually make, is not that different among advanced countries. The level of inequality of disposable income, once the government has gotten through taxing and spending, is much, much higher in the U.S. than it is in most other advanced countries, and that's because of the government. Hello. Hi. Are you the paranormal investigators? Yes, we are. Hi. Uh, That's my chart. How you doing? Uh, good. How are you? <laughs> Not too bad. Good. Um, what is your name? Jay Burkhardt. Okay. Um, I think that there is something in my house. Um, it's been going on for probably about six weeks now. 
Now, has there been any type of traumatic experience or death within your family over the course of the past six weeks? No, nothing like that at all. Okay. It's a little bit kind of like sexual. Interesting. And it's weird because I just got um, implants like six weeks ago. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. An implant? Yeah. Of what? Oh, implant, like breast implants. Huh. Now, did the entity start within the same time period? Yeah, it was pretty much like the next day. Alrighty then. Well, this is a interesting one. Okay, go well, on. Well, okay, here's, here's what's been happening. It gets, okay. okay, the lights start flickering, it gets very cold, and then I feel, I feel hands on my breasts. And the thing is, it's really not bothering me. I'd like to actually consummate this with him. I think that would make him happy, and then maybe he'd go away. Whatever you've consummated with other males, did they go away? Uh, <laughs> no, that's a good point. They usually stick around, but... Thank um, you. Well, let me, let me be blunt. I take it you have a high sex drive? Yeah. Okay, well then basically that's what's feeding the alleged entity. Right. Um, especially if you're, you're multiple orgasmic, you're literally you know, creating a smorgasbord for this entity, which is preventing it to actually have more cohesion of a physical variety within its reality. I see. Okay. okay. So how do I actually get the ghost to poke me in the butt? Why is, as you said, redistribution such a, a noxious word in our political system? I think mostly it's just because there's a very effective apparatus that, of, of TV and, and uh, um, print media and uh, think tanks and so on who hammer against any suggestion of redistribution. It just, they've managed to convince a lot of people that it is uh, somehow un-American, which actually, if you look at American history, that's not at all true, but they, uh, it's just been pushed very hard. As I think also in the United States, look, we have to admit it, that race is always lurking under almost everything in American life. And redistribution, in the minds of a lot of people means taking it taking money from people like me and giving it to people who don't look like me and i think that is a big difference between us and europe you do know that conservatives uh, are regularly consistently saying that inequality doesn't matter that if the very rich were less rich it wouldn't really make a difference to people out there working for a living but of course what europeans do which is to tax the rich and use it to provide benefits to other to people lower down the scale that makes a big difference. That can make an enormous difference. You can take, so. a, take a few percent of, of national income, take it away from the top 1% and direct it towards the bottom 20%. That's a tremendous gain in, in the quality of life for the bottom 20%. So just, just think about actually, We have a health reform. It's not the health reform we would have wanted, but it's, a, but it's better than no reform. It's financed in large part with small surtaxes on high incomes. That's if you actually ask where the money's coming from, a lot of it is coming from an additional tax on investment income, an additional tax on, on earned income for very high earners. Um, that is going to give basically everybody in America the guarantee of being able to have essential basic health insurance at an affordable cost. That's a huge change in people's lives, which is being financed in large part by taking a little bit from the top. So a little bit of Robin Hoodism does a lot. You could do a lot more than that. So no one is talking about just, you know, let's punish the rich for the sake of punishing them, but the question is, can you do redistribution in a way that makes us a better society? And the answer is yes. Well, at the end of his book, Piketty is talking about the, a global tax on wealth. Do you think that's feasible? Well, is it feasible politically? You know, if the United States were behind it, 
lots of things would become possible. If the United States were to support this, then I think you could pretty much guarantee that the Europeans would, enough Europeans would be willing to go along. And while there would be some countries that would, you know, rogue countries that would want to serve as, as havens for tax evasion, that we would have a lot of leverage over them. So really, it's not that the international global system makes this impossible. It's really, it's the U.S. political system that makes it look mm. impossible right now, and then that can change. But given the dysfunction of Congress, given the fact that the Supreme Court has, in effect, decided to enable corporations and the rich to consolidate their hold on our political system, do you have any hope of the kind of change that both Piketty and you would advocate? I think you don't give up hope on these things. We have, look, look at the American political tradition. Look at the, one of the interesting things that Piketty says is that Serious progressive taxation of high incomes and, and, and great wealth is an American invention. And they lip it off about me? You give me your manager now. Put, put that other job turkey on the phone to talk behind my back. Uh, I'm sorry, what is your name again? This Willie, put that job turkey on the phone. What is your last name? What, Willie Operator 10. Willie Operator 10? Yeah, hold on. I'm going to transfer your ass to the manager. You better hold. You sure better. He's telling me transferring my ass to a manager. We invented it, and we invented it in the early 20th century, right at the peak of our Gilded Age, and somehow we found it in ourselves to turn, to, to find political leaders, people like Teddy Roosevelt, who are willing to say, this is a bad thing. We do not want the society that is emerging here. So I think things can change. What If you ask, you know, are we going to get a wealth tax, a global wealth tax uh, before the 2016 election? No. Well, no, we're not. Uh, might we get one by the 2024 election? Possibly. You wrote something the other day that's hard to, to forget. You said we live in, there's such an ugliness in America right now. Yeah. This is one of the things that puzzles me, actually, um, about my own country, which is, it's one thing to have disparities of, of income and wealth and to have differing views about what we should be doing about it, but there is a there is a, a level of harshness in our debate, mostly coming from the people who are actually doing very well. So, you know, we've had a parade of billionaires whining that the, about, about being, you know, the incredible injustice that people are actually criticizing them, and then comparing anyone who criticizes them to, uh, to the Nazis. You know, it's, been, it's almost a tick that they have. This is, this is very strange, and it, it's kind of scary because you know, it's one thing if someone without a lot of power seems to be going off and into a rage on no good, for no good reason, but these are people who have a lot of influence because of the amount of money they control. Given what you've just said and given the fact that there's this ugliness, what do you think it's going to take? A mass uprising? Consistent demonstrations, insurgent politics. How are we going to stem the tide that he says is, this is what taking us have. into oligarchy? There's a negative and there's a positive take. Um, Piketty argues, seems to argue for much of the book that that we only escaped from the old oligarchy for a while, thanks to really disastrous events, to, thanks to wars and depressions, right. which which disrupted the system. And there, that's an argument you can make. On the other hand, if you are a, read histories of the New Deal, you know that it didn't come, it didn't spring out of nowhere, that we had a progressive movement and a lot of proto-New Deal programs building for quite a long time. There, were, there was, in fact, a move in America. There was an increasing 
political, philosophical readiness to take on inequality of wealth and power long before FDR moved into the White House. And so I think there are better angels of our nature, that there is this ugliness and which can be frightening, but there is also a, a redemptive streak in here and in other places, and that, that it, you don't give up hope on this, that, that given uh, consistent argumentation, given um, events, and perhaps, you know, as, as people become more aware of what is actually going on, uh, then, then there is a chance of changing things. Do we know that? No, but there's nothing in what we know now that says that you should give up hope of being able to change this even without catastrophe. Paul Krugman, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me on. Really excellent. Bill Moyers and Company. Front desk, this is Jim Bob. Can I help you? Hello? Yes. Are you with the phone company? It's the front desk. This is Jim Bob. I want a manager. Oh, please hold. Now I got some southern This has to be a joke. This has to... Hello, this is Stu. Can I help you? Are you with the phone company for real? This is the manager. Did you ask to speak with me? Yes, I did. Someone, Willie, operator number 10, has just talked to me so unprofessional and was swearing at me. Who, who was saying this? Willie, operator number 10? Oh, would that be Willie Robinson? Yes, he was swearing at me. I am appalled. I'm, I'm very sorry. Oh, this is going out. First of all, I'm reporting him to the phone company myself on Monday, whatever time they're open. I cannot... Hey, 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 come on. We can we can settle this, all right? Well, oh, no, I'm, I have never in my life, I thought it was a joke. I thought they transferred me to a recording. Listen, listen, if we want your opinion, we'll beat it out of you. I don't need a commentary out of you, all right? We can settle this, all right? You'll beat it out of me? Slightly better economically in 2015 than 2014, according to a recent survey by the Federal Reserve. 69% said they weren't living comfortably or doing okay, up from 65%. But 31% said they were either struggling to get by or just getting by, a figure that includes millions of middle-class Americans. In fact, it can be surprising to learn just which Americans continue to struggle. Judy Woodruff has the latest in our series with The Atlantic. By almost any measure, Neil Gabler has led a successful life. He's published respected biographies of Walt Disney, Barbara Streisand, and Walter Winchell written for leading newspapers and magazines, taught at prestigious universities. He's a husband and the father of two daughters, now launched in their own successful careers. He lives in New York's Long Island enclave, the Hamptons, a place of natural beauty and mecca for wealth and celebrity. And yet, for years, Neil Gabler harbored a dark secret. It's very difficult. I'll tell you who it's really been difficult on is my wife. Being the writer that he is, Gabler decided to come to terms with his secret by writing about it. I never write about myself, so I didn't embark on this project saying, oh gosh, I can't wait to write about my own failures, which is basically what the article is about. But really the, the spring of this piece was reading a news item about the Federal Reserve Household Economic Survey in which they asked the question, if you had a $400 emergency, could you meet that emergency? And 47% of the respondents said that they couldn't meet that emergency without either having to borrow money or to sell something. 
And I read that item and I said to myself, well, who knew? But of course I knew because many, many times in my life, and not just in the distant past, but in the unfortunate present, I couldn't afford those $400. And that's the hard truth. Despite all his outward signs of success, Neil Gabler is frequently broke. His recent story in the Atlantic magazine brought widespread attention to that fact. Did you hesitate at all about bearing your personal life? Very much so. I'm not the kind of person who really likes to expose himself. But then that reluctance became part of the article brain. itself. Because I coined the term in the article, financial impotence. And it struck me that talking about our financial situation is very much like men not wanting to talk about sexual impotence. Oh, no. It's just not something you do. It's an embarrassment. It's a shame. It's a humiliation. And financial problems are exactly the same thing. So I thought, perhaps I can help those people who feel shamed and embarrassed and humiliated and show them, look it, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to, to expose all of my faults, all of my mistakes, all of my failures. You're not alone. What do you say, buddy? How's everything? <laughs> Hang it in there. Hang it in there. Gabler knew he wasn't alone even before writing the article due to weekly chats with Brian Brunges, an East Hampton butcher. Brian the butcher is my friend. He's a wonderful, easy guy to talk to. And gradually, over time, we talk about our financial situation. Very, very rare, particularly among men. And I remember one day, especially, this was one of those periods where I didn't have the $400 and unfortunately they come all too frequently. And he said, I'm gonna tell you something. He said, I've been the same situation, I've got this expense and that expense. If anybody tells you that they're sailing through, yeah. they're lying. Exactly. Everybody struggles. I have a child with autism. He was diagnosed 20 years ago. Okay, my wife had to stop working. Became a one, one income family. We accumulated a lot of outside expenses. So I struggled, but you know what? I got to do what I got to do. That was almost the, the final push to write the piece because, you know, he's right. Uh, there are so many people in trouble. They won't talk about it. Brian is one of the very few who would be open with me, and I was able to be open with him as a result. Um, so we were able to share this. It kind of like took a weight off my shoulder, knowing that a guy like Neil you know, he's got a house in East Hampton. You figure, eh, you know, he's doing all right for himself, but he's not. Everybody's struggling, you know, and it's it's tough. The middle class is, is in desperate straits. I think that's Edward Wolf is a professor of economics at New York University. They, uh, today, the uh, average family has enough financial reserves to keep going for about uh, three weeks. That's 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 it. And that's, that's middle income, and if you go further down the ladder, basically uh, the financial reserves can keep the family going for, for a couple of days at most. And so, you know, these financial uh, reserves have just completely evaporated. It's, it's, it's incredible. We came up with this word, financial fragility, when we thought of looking at the capacity of families to bear a shock, to face a shock. Anne Maria Lusardi is an economist at George Washington University. And the way we formulated the question is, 
how confident are you that you could come up with $2,000 if an unexpected need arose within the next month? And what we found is 40% of families could not come up with $2,000 in 30 days. So it's important to recognize that, that the financial fragility is just so widespread. The main reason is that we've had a long period of uh, wage stagnation in this country, even going further back, even to the mid-1970s. So in the face of uh, stagnating incomes, uh, what did families do? Well, for a while they, they did accumulate wealth, and uh, this was uh, buoyed by the housing price boom of uh, going forward until 2006, and then uh, suddenly the housing market collapsed, and so did uh, net worth. How much of what, what you would describe as your financial condition is due to decisions that Neil Gabler made, and how much of it is due to outside circumstances beyond your control? That's a, that's a great question, and, and I want to take responsibility. I don't want to put everything off on these larger financial forces. I chose to become a writer. This is the most financially perilous for profession that one can possibly imagine, except possibly being an actor. Um, you know, I chose to live in New York City because I thought I needed to be close to magazines and, and publishers that I needed for my writing career. So I did that, uh, and New York is expensive. Um, you know, I chose to have two children. You know, children are expensive. I made the choice to send them to expensive colleges. So those were all choices that I made that had serious financial consequences. But again, those choices were what I call life. So many young people today are told, find your passion and follow it. It sounds like that's what you did. That's exactly what I did. I followed my bliss. And I'm happy I did. So, you know, I, I accept responsibility. On the other hand, since roughly half of Americans are suffering the same sort of financial fragility I'm in, we can't say that they're all imbeciles. What we have to say is that there are forces beyond our control. Let me ask you a couple of other questions about personal decisions you made. Absolutely. You brought it up yourself. The decision to live here, we're in East Hampton. People think, living in the Hamptons? That's a really expensive part of America. You know, when people hear that I live in the Hamptons, the first thing they say to me is, oh my gosh, you live in the Hamptons. What they don't really understand is that there are two Hamptons. There are the people who live here full time, as I do, who are not wealthy. And there are the people who come here during the summer who are. So. Yes, I do live in the Hamptons. And when I bought this house, um, you know, I could afford it. It wasn't exorbitantly expensive. Uh, I was able to afford it for a very long time. This is all cedar, but you can see how many shingles are, are missing right, here. Right, right. These days, though, the house has fallen into disrepair. It's in desperate need of a new roof. Floorboards are rotting. It has not seen fresh paint in many years. If I had $100,000... This woman's voice as she says this, 
His house is actually falling apart. The floor is falling through. The ceiling is about to collapse on our head as we do this interview. I mean, I'm just saying. You could probably, get all the I could probably get it <laughs> really Did you ever think about moving to a less that's expensive harsh. part of the country? We did, and we've, we've talked about that. But here's the catch-22 of that. If we were, once the recession hit, you know, the house lost its value, as it did for, you know, most Americans. So now the house is deteriorating, it's lost its value. So if I had the resources to fix up the house to sell it, I wouldn't need to sell it. <laughs> That's the catch-22. I am a financial illiterate, and financial illiterates pay a heavy price for their financial illiteracy. Gabler is not using the term financial illiteracy loosely. It's a phenomenon economists say is a key factor in the current fragility of the middle class. We measure financial literacy by looking at basic financial knowledge. We are experiencing much more complex financial markets, much more complex financial products than in the past. And the, the knowledge of people has not kept up. Half of America will have to compromise on their dreams. There's one statistic that I cite in the piece from a USA Today survey, which I think is fascinating. And that survey determined that a middle-class existence in America would cost $130,000. A year. A year. The median income in America is somewhere around $50,000. So a middle-class existence was more than two times as great as the median income. And what that tells you is that the face of financial fragility is the face of the college educated as well as the those without a high school diploma. You know, it's the face of, you know, white America as well as the face of minority Americans who obviously suffer much greater. This is an equal opportunity situation. It affects so many of us. It's a great sadness to think that people feel compelled to give up their dreams of what they thought a modest middle-class life would be. But they have. They have. Even I have. Wow. That was completely... Uh, uncovered a lot of things. Ma'am, whatever the problem is here, your, your gripe, it's come about as a result of your own stupidity. You people can't really beat the fucking phone company. Oh. You paid your phone bill, and what's the problem? Because I'm notifying you as a courtesy. I just got this out of my box tonight. You don't need to notify us. We'll get your bill in the mail. What's what's the problem? You're this, not has making... be, this has to be a... You, you people can't really work for the phone company. You can call up giving me this commentary. This is ridiculous. You swear at me, sir. Well, uh, you know, like it's... Maybe you, you're asking for it the way you're talking. I'm asking for it in the way I'm talking. And how, how many people do we have to have on the phone, too? Who, who else we got in the room there? She must be eating at uh, Marine, Marina Abramovich's house because this is nuts. Oh, no, she can't be from Queens. No, you're not. My name is Keisha, 
and I'm expecting my first child. Oh my god. And I love sniffing and chewing dirty diapers. Sniffing and chewing dirty that diapers. That could be good for your child. Mm. It has to have pee in it. It has to have pee oh in it. Oh my gosh. It has to have I can't. This is like R. Kelly on steroids. More pee, smell better. Yeah. Maybe you need mm. some. Maybe you need some urea, honey. You can get that in a cream. And there's probably some kind of nutrient that you're missing out. You don't need to, to do this. Oh, I love it. It just tastes amazing. It just tastes amazing. I have one while I'm cooking in the kitchen. I have one in my drawers. I have one while I'm sleeping. I keep some in my trunk. I keep some in my pocketbook. No, for real. This is good. <laughs> Hold on. Okay, continue. She's acting to get on TLC. I find a lot of diapers, like, all over the place. There's a diaper. There's a diaper. Hurry up, baby's crying. It's very annoying because she doesn't care what time it is. She'll wake my baby up to take the diaper that's on the baby. What? I want to. I want to take this one off of her here. Oh my god! She's gonna cry. We're gonna take this one off. Yeah, this this is ready to go. Oh. Yeah, this this is ready to go. She's sleepy. Don't change her diaper right now. She's gonna cry. It's nasty. This is getting like out of hand. But where do you think that comes from? My addiction to diapers started about three years ago. One of my friends was changing her baby and she gave me the diaper to throw out. And I kept it for like a week. Oh. And I smelt it like every morning, night. Since the first diaper, Keisha has collected over 25,000 dirty diapers. That's a lifetime supply for six babies. It's and where does it go? A landfill? Stop throwing my stuff out. Come on. She's even willing to dig in the garbage for her diapers. I'm gonna smell them just one last time and then you can have them. I'm gonna smell them just one last time and then you There's can have them. There's something wrong with no. you. Please, Joel. No. I like dirty diapers that's what i want that's what i need to have dirty diapers that's what i want that's what i need to have what has happened to the american dream people what has happened hello the security guard place oh great my name's bircham i'm new to the area and i'm looking for a job Not hiring, huh? Not hiring guys that did three tours in Nam and their third degree black belts in Taekwondo. Not hiring a guy who can take an AK-47 blindfolded, break it down, oil it, and reassemble it in less than four minutes. You're not hiring any of them. Not hiring a guy who can kill a man using only his thumb on his left hand. Well, we don't have any. 
Not hiring a guy who modified his AK-47 to go full automatic and added a 40-round banana clip to it? You're not hiring that guy? Not hiring a guy who customized his van so it looked like the A-Team van? You're not going to hire that guy? Something is happening in America. What is it? You can feel it in the wind. See it in the cityscapes that stretch before us. Watch it appear in the faces of those who have worked so hard for so long. If I'm in the middle class in America right now, I see not only plants closing, I see neighborhood stores closing. I see my educational system failing my kids. I see a government that in some cases is, is financially bankrupt and can't provide the social services that I was used to seeing. I see a, uh, a future that's scary to me. Recently I came across a report that talked about the levels of inequality that we have in our society and noted that we haven't seen levels like this um, since 1929. We listen, gloss over the headlines, read magazines and watch the evening news. We are told every day about the speed of change in the modern world. We hear about the dangers of globalization. The whole world is now competing for the same economic benefit. We struggle to understand it all, but it all becomes only a blur of images and of words. If I'm a member of people who are socioeconomically in the lower strata of our society, I'm losing hope. There's increasing violence. Our prison system now is more expensive than our educational system. Our nation is in the midst of a perfect storm. If we maintain our present policies, it is very likely that we will continue to grow apart. Our nation will experience greater inequity in wages and wealth, and our citizens will experience increasing social and political polarization. If you were looking back on this period of time, you would ask yourself, why didn't this country of, of great intent, a democracy, a country with great resources, why didn't they see this? We hear on the news that the world is becoming smaller, faster, more interconnected. We are in the midst of a digital revolution. The knowledge economy has replaced the information age, which it seems only yesterday had replaced the industrial age. One of the forces in our storm is the changes that we've seen in the economy. Um, those changes are being brought about by technological innovation, by globalization, those changes are restructuring uh, not just the economy, but the workforce. Geographic boundaries of longitude and latitude are yielding to relative location that exists in cyberspace. Populations intersect regardless of national boundaries. A graduate of a United States high school, when they get a job, they are not competing just with other workers in the region. They are in fact competing with workers in India, in China, in Japan, South America, uh, Europe. We hear about jobs going to other countries, factories closing down. It's less expensive to make a DVD player in China and ship it to the United States than it is to build that technology here. The environment that we operate in is no longer localized, it's global. 
and it's highly technology-based or digital. So many of the skills that we used to teach people, the basic skills, are no longer those that are relevant to the new society. So we have to we have to acknowledge that change, and we have to acknowledge that the educational system of the past is failing miserably. There's a hundred million people who don't have the literacy and numeracy skills to exist in our current society, and that's going to grow by 30 million people in the next 10 years. I think as a society and as a country, we're at a crossroads. We leave too many kids behind in schools. Today, approximately 30% of the students who start ninth grade fail to graduate on time. And among those who do make it to the 12th grade, more than 50%, according to NAEP data, lack the necessary reading and math skills that they're going to need to fully participate in our emerging economy. We are losing, from a human capital point of view, a significant percentage of our potential. And that's part of the reason you see the U.S. economy is staggering now. We need to have a human capital agenda. If we don't get that part right, not much else matters. As the economic structure of the nation shifts, and the education system struggles to adapt, the demographic profile of the population is changing. We're now seeing levels of immigration um, that we haven't seen in almost a century. And that immigration is not coming from the European continent where it used to, it's now coming from South and Central America. The um, Census Bureau predicts that over the next 10 years, uh, foreign immigration is likely to account for more than half of our population growth. These demographic shifts which include increased immigration, variable birth rates among various sectors of the population, and the aging of the American population, are compounding the lowering skills level of the overall population. At the very time when new and more sophisticated skills are needed in the economy, and when the education system is struggling to adapt to this new environment, the population as a whole increasingly lacks the skills necessary to compete in the global economy. So while the educational system is struggling to become more efficient, more effective, it's going to have to do so with a different mix of people, with a different mix of backgrounds, different mix of languages, a different mix of, of skill sets that, that these kids come to schools with. The profound restructuring of the American economic environment when coupled with the increasingly inadequate skills base of the nation's workforce and the changing demographic profile of the nation, represents a confluence of trends that are creating a perfect storm for America. If the current forces stay in play as we predict they will, in all likelihood, America will grow further apart, become more divided socially, economically, politically, Wages for low-skilled workers will continue to decline, while those with high skills will be in demand and see their incomes rise dramatically. The middle class in America will steadily continue to shrink, and the population will increasingly grow apart into the haves and have-nots. I think you're going to have such an extensive underclass that we are going to have increasing crime rates, increasing mental illness, um, increasing um, uh, polarity, 
The most dire aspect of this perfect storm is its invisibility. It is approaching America incrementally, not in the space of days, but over the course of years. ETS, the world's largest educational research organization, has seen this storm develop over the course of its research. We've got to take this information and not only bring it to the attention of public policymakers, we've got to find new forums to bring together people to talk about solutions. Absent a radical shift in this nation's attitude towards the education and development of its human capital, the American dream will fall by the wayside of history. We need a clear picture of the challenge we face. We must not allow our country's population to continue to drift apart. As a nation, we must invest in efforts to help us grow together. You know what? I'm not trying to make us feel stupid. I'm just saying that we're actually laughing at how dumb we've become. And we've become the joke, you know? What? song are you talking about? Hey, go boom, 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 ooh. Uh. Boom, 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 ooh, uh, yeah. I, I want to buy the record. You know the name of the artist? Yay! Yay. Boop, 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 uh, yay! Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what that is, I'm sorry. It's a song! It's yay! A song. Uh, okay, I'm just not sure what that is. It's a uh, song! It goes boop, 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 uh, yay! You hear, the, you hear on the radio? I can dance! Boop, 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 uh! Uh, do you know, what kind of song is that? A rock song, or a rap song, or a country a, song? Yeah, it goes boop, 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 uh! Old town on the coast of Maine in the school there where they were, where the, the guy came in, the facilitator, not Mr. Havelock, not Professor Havelock, but a facilitator, uh, to train us. And these were good people that were there. You know, they were some of the teachers from my school, where I was on the local school board, principals, etc. normal looking Americans. Uh, you know, you really ask yourself, they must themselves have reacted very much the way I did. That's why I've always had uh, a lot of, um, understanding for teachers that have to go through this stuff i didn't have to continue going through it they've had to through the years constant training retraining sensitivity training break their values right no right no wrong you've got to have all all religions represented so you know tolerant of everything and because that's the new world order disorder excuse me professor benjamin bloom is probably the most important behavioral psychologist ever to live. I mean, maybe not quite as much as Pavlov and Skinner, but he really implemented the system in education in the United States. And uh, he was the, the um, author of uh, the Taxonomy of Educational Objectives. And I know that doesn't mean much to us. It means a lot to teachers. They know all teachers have to go through that. Bloom's Taxonomy. And uh, just to give you an idea of how blatant they are. Uh, Benjamin Bloom uh, said the purpose of education, and I often say this to parents, really, listen to this. 
you think the purpose of education is reading, writing, and arithmetic? The purpose of education is to change the thoughts, actions, and feelings of students. And then he goes on and he says, um, he defines good teaching, and this is even worse from the parental standpoint, as challenging the students' fixed beliefs. And then, in some of his works that I have, that are in my book, a lot of this stuff is in When he says challenge, does he mean challenge or does he mean change? Change Yeah, through challenging. It's through challenging. You go up against them and you, you, you change them. And you asked a good question because then he goes on in one part of the taxonomy that is in my book, uh, he says that he can take a student from here to there, from a belief in God or his country or whatever, to being an atheist and not believing in his country in one hour. Oh, yeah, he does it. And I've seen it with students. I've seen it with young people. And they don't even know. And teachers don't even know. That's why if you talk to teachers about it often, they'll really have an awfully hard time dealing with it. And, and if you go up to a superintendent, an, administ an educational administrator, superintendent, whatever, and you ask him or her, have you ever been through sensitivity training, they'll usually crack up because they went through it. They are the worst, those programs. I've, I've been through them. I mean, how can anything be worse than some of the ones that the regular classroom has, but they're the worst. To bring about change, they put them through role-playing, psychodrama, all these psychological techniques where they play the part of starving children and the, and the other one plays the part of a very wealthy industrialist child. And, you know, they bring about the attitude and value change through the emotions. You know how young people are, you know, they, they're naturally very altruistic and they want to help and they don't like to see poverty around the world. And so what they'll do is just like, I think I mentioned you earlier, or I don't know whether I did, uh, going into our, the teacher putting in the new social studies program in our community and walking through, having taken the little tots through town and identifying big, rich people's houses and small, poor people's houses. Uh, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Uh, getting them young and making them feel sorry for the people who live in the trailer across from the captain's house because they only eat hot dogs, not steak. And then they'll do the same thing with uh, Ethiopia or wherever, some third world country showing them the children dying. And then and then they'll show pictures of our, our uh, affluence. And what do you eat for breakfast? Oh, you have eggs and bacon and cereal and orange juice and grapefruit and everything, yum, yum, yum. Do you really think it's fair? Common unity, that's what we call it, common unity. It has no role for the individual in the community and for everything that goes on in the Soviet Union or communism is based on the community, the commune. Here we go. Okay, you know what? I'll take care of this myself right yeah, now. Yeah, listen, you should have read the fine print before you signed up I for this in the first that. place. I did read that. And I was, it says, excuse me? I said, you should have read the fine print before you opened the account with us to begin with. We reserved the right to, to bill you for whatever we damn well please. And you've got to pay your bill, otherwise we shut your service off. I always do that, sir. Well, apparently not. You're calling up with, with some, some great... Because I got something in the mail today. Irrelevant. Well, I just got it today. We just 
to a new house. Charlotte is her bite. Kyla Powers. My name is Charlotte Thompson is her bait. And I served as senior policy advisor in the United States Department of Education. Uh, under the Reagan administration, during which I had access to uh, all of the most important documents uh, for the restructuring of not only American education, but uh, global education. And I'm also the author of The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America, which gets into all of this, gives the background of what I saw not only in the Department of Education, but as a local school board member. I was trained uh, to identify the resistors the resistors to the sex ed, drug ed, alcohol ed, uh, suicide ed, death ed, those good, smart Americans who realize that anything that has education hanging off the end of it is probably not what they're looking for. Uh, I was trained to identify those good people and uh, to go up against them and actually to go and try to get them to join us through the group process system, make them feel important, get them on a committee. And when I, that just blew my mind. I, I have to say, people often ask me, what is it that got you involved in education? Well, finding out what, what I saw at the local level certainly upset me. When I went and I saw that Americans were being trained to identify resistors, yeah, you know, then I, uh, I got pretty upset. And uh, luckily, there was a big book that came with the in-service training called Innovations in Education a change agent's guide. And uh, I was able to take that back home with me. Unbelievable examples of how to con the Christians and different people who are upset with what you're trying to do, how to bring them over to your side, case studies, true case studies of educators who had put programs in that uh, normally, you know, in a normal American town, nobody would want them. How did they manage to get them in? How did they con the people? And the other thing was, not only was I trained to identify the resistors, I was trained to go to the important people, uh, high profile, highly thought of people in the community uh, with the Rotary, Chamber of Commerce, uh, Garden Club, you name it, the different groups in our towns. Go to them and convince them of the importance of these new programs like sex ed, drug ed, I just mentioned all of them and get them on your side because when you can get the leadership in a community to go along with it then the newspaper comes in and says you know a committee's been set up with the head of the rotary and this and that and they're all getting behind this task force to dis discuss whether we're going to have a new sex education program and then when mary jones you know who ordinarily would think why would we want to have a sex education program when we don't have any problems with kids having sex or anything uh so she might be uh you know, concerned, she might be one of the resistors. She reads that her best friend, who's the head of the garden club, is on this committee and she thinks, oh, well, hey, Mary, Mary uh, Appleton is on the committee. She's heading it up, it must be okay. So I was taught really how to con the community. They always call everybody by the first name. You have to get very, you know, affectionate with people and you say, William, you know, I'm so glad you've come to this meeting and I understand your concerns about this program because uh, you know I've had other people usually it's the really bright people in the community who have these concerns and would you like to join our our group the original program was uh, funded by my what be, what would subsequently become my office 
was funded by the Office of Research and the U.S. Office of Education, because it was funded early on, about the late 60s. Still funded, by the way. And uh, the money went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to a professor by the name of Ronald Havelock. And he was the one that uh, put together the whole training, the whole seminar, the book. And in the back of the book, you had, they admitted it, right in the back of the book, they had about 100 major change agents listed from all over the country. Some of them I recognize, some I still don't, but some I do. And so this was a very important project. And uh, it was being, you know, it was being carried out in our, I'm sure, all over the country, not just where I was. This was in Searsport, Maine, this lovely little... But this has got to be, this has got to be, I just can't. I don't believe it. I can literally hear Miss inner thoughts. Well, that's not weird, but anyway. I mean, that is weird, but anyway. My name is Olympia and I'm 17. I'm just a regular suburban chick. And I am addicted to pretending to be furniture. I think it's, it's something I've just loved in all my life. And it stems from, you know, one sort of Christmas. I my aunt Rosemary sat on me accidentally. She didn't mean to. And I was frightened and horrified at first. But, you know, the more that I sort of recalled it and remembered it, I wish she'd do it again. Olympia's addiction began at age 11. I have to do it. It's a compulsion. I'll be doing, you know, the washing up, some sort of regular, you know, day-to-day -day activity and I'll remember that I just love being furniture and I have to just, I have to do it. What? Not satisfied until she has become 37 different types of furniture a day. My name is Nova. I am Olympia's, let's say, life partner. Olympia is addicted to taking on the roles of various pieces of furniture. Well, we live in a very small apartment. I just don't understand how she thinks I don't know. She, I don't think she, she, she has no idea. She's bending. I am very aware of this, I don't want to say sickness, hobby, perhaps. Um, when you're standing with a lampshade on your head, that's not inconspicuous. I can't explain it. I don't expect anyone to understand it. I just fucking love it. You know, an armchair, a chaise long, you know, I'm there. She risked permanent damage to her health. It's getting to the point now where when, it's really affecting, affecting me. When, when, when she, she really risked her health when she was a washing machine for three hours and she was turning her arm. First of all, what load of clothes rotate for three hours now? Come on now. You know. I don't know how I'm going to tell my family and my friend. I've got this wonderful partner, Nova, and she has no idea that I do it. You're not incognito. I can see that you're standing there with a lampshade on your head. I can see <laughs> it in your eyes. I'm yet to bring this to her attention, though. I, I'm, I'm worried about what it would be like for our relationship if I brought this up with her. So as, as of right now, she doesn't know that I'm, a, I'm aware of this. Olympia has decided to come out about her um, addiction. So, I mean, I brought you here today. I just, um, I have something to tell you, Nova. It's I'm secretly a couch. It's kind of a big deal, I suppose. It's kind of hard for me to say this. Um, She's what? got a Blair Witch necklace. I can't. I cannot around. 
But the last thing men behind the curtain want is a conscious, informed public capable of critical thinking, which is why a continually fraudulent zeitgeist is output via religion, the mass media, and the educational system. They seek to keep you in a distracted, naive bubble. And they are doing a damn good job of it. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks. And it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re the wealthy, that... The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. And by the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hardworking people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hardworking people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? Is this the portrait studio? Yes, it is. With whom am I speaking? The owner, photographer, uh, bookkeeper. Uh, and does that young janitor, man, maintenance does, man? And does that lovely jack of all trades have a name? Yes, it does. How may I help you? Can I have the name? Mark. Hello, Marvin. This is Niall Standish calling. I do not believe I know you. Well, you don't, but you're soon going to. I am looking to have some portrait work done. Yes. How can I help you? All right. I had a few questions. Um, firstly, your rate. 
4295 for a session. Will you do me a favor? Yep. Will you take that 4295 and double it? No. I have my prices set and I stick to them. No, no, no. Not with me, you don't. I'm going to give you at least two times whatever you charge. You can leave the money there. You don't have to take it, but I will be giving it to you. Okay, continue. I am listening. All right. Here's a few of the specifics I'm looking to, to have. It will be a portrait of myself, Niall Standish, Earl of Yankerville, very regal. I want to be out on the grounds of my estate. I want some lovely portrait done, and of course I'll be in the nude. You don't have a problem with the human figure. Uh, myself, I do not do nude. It's personal. Uh, uh, well, I, 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 I believed you were an artist. Uh, I do not do nude. Michelangelo did nudes. That is fine. This is something personal to me, and I do not do nudes. Rodin did nudes. Uh, I must repeat myself. I do not do nudes. Rubens did nudes. And Paul Rubens did nudes. Well, m does not do nudes. Let me just explain to you, and then perhaps you'll see that it's purely artistry. It couldn't get any simpler. All the financial advice you really need might just fit on a 4x6 index card. And in the next eight minutes, our economics correspondent, Paul Salmon, will fill you in and let you know what the secret is. It's part of our weekly Making Sense report, which airs every Thursday on the NewsHour. Use Fidelity's analytics to spot trends, gain insights, and figure out what you want to do next. On TV, financial advice abounds. No, no more but the best advice is, ignore it. So says University of Chicago health policy professor Harold Pollack, who lives in Flossmore, Illinois, 20 miles from campus. About personal finance, until recently, he knew squat. I sort of figured it would all work out, and I didn't have to think about it too much. And so I did it. Until that is, he had to when in 2003, his mother-in-law died suddenly, leaving her disabled son in the Pollock's hands. The expenses of caring for someone who is quite disabled, you know, are very frightening. Uh, when Vincent moved into our home, he was about 340 pounds, and we needed to get furniture that, that would fit him. One time we had to go out and just buy a recliner, and it was something like $900. And there were hospitalizations, medical bills. Pollock needed advice. So he started reading and had what he calls an epiphany. All the financial experts actually had a pretty simple set of things that they that they suggested that you do, and basically all of them would say tune out all the other stuff. Like the TV ads. So to be useful to others, Pollock started chronicling his financial education in a blog, and in 2013 interviewed financial self-help writer Helene Olin over Skype. At one point, he said offhandedly, the, part, the really good advice is a, can fit on a 3x5 index card and is available for free in the library. This time around, Helene Olin joined virtually once again, stuck at home with the flu. People began to write to Harold and asked him to do an index card. So Pollock put 10 items on an index card, took a snapshot, and posted it online. It promptly went viral, touted on the Washington Post's Wonk blog, on websites Boing Boing and Lifehacker. And thus was born Pollock and Olin's short new book, The Index Card, A Few Simple Rules. And that just seemed much more doable to a lot of people. So what's on the card? Rule one, strive to save 10 to 20% of your income. 
which means slashing your spending on what you don't much care about. If you look down here, you'll get some nice rust developing here. There are other things that I do spend money on. I go on vacations, I do other things. Uh, yeah, I take my wife to Bruce Springsteen. Uh, so, but I try to spend my money on the things that I enjoy, and I really just am apathetic about my car, so I shouldn't spend any money on it. It's blistering over here. Yeah. Though rule one is easier advised than accomplished, Helene Olin acknowledges. I mean, how on earth are you supposed to save between 10 and 20% of your income if you're making $20,000 a year? And the answer is you probably won't. My position is that everybody has helped if at all possible to just even get a little bit of money aside. Rule two, pay your credit card balance in full every month. Obvious. Yet less than a third of Americans follow this rule. One of the great things that you can do is try to pay cash more often for stuff. And if you must use credit cards, figure out the one that has the highest interest rate and stop using that one and pay off as much as you can on that credit card. Pay the minimum on all your other credit cards. Don't, don't ever avoid a credit card payment. Three, max out your 401k and other tax-advantaged savings accounts. To this day, only 12% of Americans do this. When Pollock started working, he wasn't one of them. It was too much trouble, it was boring, it was, you know, it was something that was really far off in the future, and, you know, the stock market was like one-tenth of what it is right now. And boy, I wish I could have that back. Rule four, never buy or sell individual stocks, because less than 1% of us have the ability to consistently outperform the market. It turns out that the individual people are not good at picking winners and losers in the stock market, and financial professionals aren't that great at picking winners and losers either. No matter what they tell you. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. According to Pollock, a PBS show from the 70s and 80s bears some responsibility for our faith in stock picking. Good evening, I'm Louis Rukeyser. This is Wall Street Week. The show returned to TV on Fox Business News last month. They were pushing people away from what they should be thinking about, which is, I'm not going to be able to pick which stocks are good. I shouldn't even try to do that. And what I really care about is what the stock market is going to be in 20 or 30 years, not what it's going to be next year. Or next week, or tomorrow. So rule five, buy inexpensive, well-diversified mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. Index funds, that is, and hold them. Many, many people believe that their financial advisor is free. Rule six is related to five, but it's more subtle. Insist your investment advisor, if you have one, commits to a fiduciary standard, putting the client first, instead of the suitability standard, which requires no such commitment. To illustrate, Pollock posted a video with cakes. Thanks for sharing your cake, Jim. It was suitable. From now on, I'll keep my cake for myself. That's fiduciary. If you put your money into sensible index funds uh, and save for your retirement and did everything properly, you'd end up with this whole cake. Mm -hmm. If you invested in basically the same types of investments, but the sorts of things that people recommend on the suitability standard, which have higher fees, you would end up with less cake. And there'd be this slice missing, which could be significant. That missing slice costs American investors about $17 billion a year in fees, says Pollock. And just last week, the Obama administration proposed a new rule that would hold all investment advisors to this higher standard. Okay, let's zip through to the end. Rule seven, 
Buy a home only when you're financially ready. You can stop going to Starbucks. You can buy a cheaper car the next time around. You can't do much about your 30-year mortgage. You're kind of stuck with that. So it is important that in these big things that you are appropriately modest in what you can afford. Eight, insurance. Make sure you're protected. Get the largest deductible that you can. You want your insurance for the $50,000 problem, not for the $500 problem. And you can save yourself a lot of money if you get a higher deductible on your homeowners and your auto insurance. Nine, the most controversial on the card, do what you can to support the social safety net. To me, it's incredibly important to appreciate uh, that we all have to protect each other against some of the risks in life that would just crush any one of us if we had to face it alone. And, and when Vincent moved into our house, uh, we would have absolutely been bankrupted without Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and all the programs that helped our family. And no, finally, no 10, remember programs. the index card. The idea A is... A lot of people assume that it's only urban communities that are taking advantage of these programs and they don't understand that it's people that just got to this country and people that whites that you might think are just middle class or upper middle class all thanking God for some of these programs. You have to be methodical and stick to this. And, you know, the advice that we give is good, but it's the execution that's really going to matter. For the PBS NewsHour, this is Paul Salmon, an economics correspondent for 39 years now, here to tell you that if Harold Pollack and Helene Olin have it wrong, I've learned nothing. Very nice meeting you. Over all this time. Advice. And what's the problem? Well, it's being spoken to. Well, I, I have no way of verifying that any of this is true, and, and I'm a man of noble intelligence, okay? You can't really work for the phone company. There's no way. Yeah, well, fine. Do business with somebody else, okay? Oh, I think they will. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. No, that was ridiculous. But Nathaniel's relationship with Chase goes beyond dates and presents. We have our times when we get sexual. Does that feel good? You're a handsome man. Love you, baby. This guy's talking to his what car. What do we do the most often? He must have grown up on Night Rider or something. I don't know. What? Well, it's because I wasn't with him at work his picture's on my desktop so i see his face all the time what if somebody like keyed that car what would he do what would he do i don't know this is just people are weird <laughs>